Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. Hello, lovely audience. This is another episode of Analyzing Alpha. This is part two of our Alpha uh, investigations. I have now completed my my full course of Alpha with Holy Trinity Brompton. That completed for me last Wednesday. This this week, tomorrow even, we're going to have our first post-Alpha week. I'm kind of looking forward to that. I like the group that I've been chatting with so it's going to be interesting for me to talk to that outside of uh, alpha but there we go we've got andrew say hello to the world andrew hello and expelliarmus to all of the christians <laughs> you got you're about you're still a few weeks to go haven't you you're halfway yes, through seven or eight you're, like you're around about there have you done the yeah. saturday yet you... yeah just uh just last saturday just, um I didn't get to attend because of some of that uh, aforementioned Corona stuff that we talked about in the run-up. So I missed the Saturday. That's unfortunate. Um, yeah, yeah. I I would have enjoyed being there, but I didn't get to make it. Um, okay, so. and then you've got one early tomorrow morning, so I can't keep you up late this evening. And yeah, it's only about it's only about four thirty my time though. So, so oh good. right, we we have to run quite long. I mean, we have to go like another six hours or something <laughs> and darren you're going to be our resident villain aren't you while andrew and i play the nice guys you're, you're our villain who attracts all the boos and hisses uh, welcome back on darren you've watched another couple of uh, weeks of alpha i have i'm up to week five now i think okay and first time caller thank you tony we missed you last time that we did this but you're also doing alpha i believe you said you're about four weeks in welcome onto the onto the podcast tony thank you very much yes that's right I'm, i've just done week four so it's week five tomorrow your first time on still unbelievable as well so so it's double whoop for that what i wanted to do first is we did our part one a couple of weeks ago and we've had a couple of episodes of still unbelievable first so this won't take very long but we have had a little bit of feedback that i wanted to quickly rush through but before we touch on the feedback that i received on email a couple of the people who are on my alpha group have listened to our, our part one deconstruction so i got the face-to-face -face, uh, feedback on that and i'll just like to say this for the world to hear it is official i am nicer than andrew and darren okay you you heard it here first that is the official feedback well okay. to be fair I don't think anyone claims that I'm nicer than anyone else. And I didn't know we were in the running, or I might have tried harder, but <laughs> probably not. So. I, I, I kind of get the feeling that you two guys aren't taking this seriously enough and that you're not devastated by, by that revelation. Well, I've been I, called the actual devil before, so unless they, uh, unless they called me the devil's devil, I don't think they can top what I've already been called. And I thought you, you hit a real low mark when you <laughs> said that uh, that you and I were going to be the nice guys while Darren was uh, going to be the bad guy a few minutes ago. So, so uh, yeah, so I think there's really got to do something to raise the bar about this nice guy thing. Cause, uh, 
not not what I get accused of. So. I just I just wish the uh, position came with minions because I could really use minions. Yeah. Um, and and I, I'm going to have to stop you right there because the other piece of feedback that I got is we get distracted too easily. We don't have enough attention. We we need to stick to the the thing of and. We're barely five minutes in, and you're talking about minions, and you're okay. wanting to be associated with the devil. I mean, come on, chaps. We really okay, need but, to stay focused here. Okay, so Matthew, you you wanted to go right into listener feedback. We should we should go into feedback because um, it is important that the listeners know that that we hear what they have to say, and that we respond to the extent that we can. This is to lure you guys into a false sense of uh, security. You know, we we really are we are meanies under under our pleasant strokey skin. And um, one of the things that we did get feedback on is uh, we we talked a fair bit and we speculated a little bit about about finances for Alpha. And I am going to get to that a little bit later on because I've got something uh, to say about that. But it was one of the things that we got in the feedback and. Uh, somebody did say it was a bit of a mistake for us to speculate about the feedback and we didn't reach a conclusion and uh, potentially we're trying to although the feedback didn't say poison the well it was you it was almost like by insinuation we're trying to paint out alpha in in a bad light and if that's the impression listeners that you got from our conversation about money that wasn't my intention so i genuinely and wholeheartedly apologize if that was the intention you got from us so i wasn't trying to cast dispersions upon Alpha when we were speculating about the money. But I have got something more concrete to talk about money a little bit later about about Alpha. And again, I'm sorry if you thought it was a mistake to talk about money. One of the reasons why I talked about money was when we announced that we were going to be doing the, the Alpha analysis, somebody said, will you please look in, into the finances? So that was why we, we talked a little bit about, about the money and the finances. But I will be clarifying about finances earlier because I've spoken to somebody at Alpha. So I'll get to that. So first of all, apologies if you got the wrong impression about my intentions about, about talking about money, but we're going to clarify that up and somebody else commented about getting a little bit chatty like the conversation we had about the serpent uh, and, and the talking serpent and we kind of got distracted into other non-alpha things but but you mentioned while we were talking about this Darren that uh, this is very much a big thing uh, in America and this kind of literalism so you felt that it was quite important to bring up these literalist things that, that a great deal of Christians specifically in America uh, believe. Well I don't know that it how important it is. I think the last poll said that like 40% of the American Christians take the Genesis story seriously. Literally, I guess is the term. But um, but I mean, the commenter was correct. I don't think they brought it up in the alpha. So I, I think it was just tangentially related to what we were talking about. Yes, we did. It ended up on a tangent. So I can't even remember how we, how we got there. But no, it's not mentioned in alpha. And um, so we, with tangents aside, and hopefully there won't be any more tangents and we'll, we'll stick to the critique, the feedback that we've got is generally being positive and, and a bit and, and constructive. So thank you, listeners, for the uh, content that we've had. I, I genuinely do appreciate it. And if you want to be more critical in content, I'm quite happy to accept criticism. With that said, the other news is before we get into to talk about episodes is I had a conversation with the Alpha Director of Communications earlier this afternoon, literally only about five hours ago. 
I've circulated to the others on the calls my main bullet points from that conversation. I did record the conversation on Skype at uh, his permission, and I, I've saved that, but that won't, none of the recording will be going out onto any of our episodes because he, he did say to me he doesn't want to be involved in the podcast, and that's fine. I didn't push the point. That was completely up to him to do. But we did have a brilliant uh, conversation. I really enjoyed the conversation. So so thank you, Mark, if you listen to this. Thank you for the conversation that we had. Now, there were a few points. Now, let me, as promised, talk about, about the money because I had a conversation with Mark uh, about the money and he clarified some of the things for me. And he, he said, Alfred, don't make any money from running the courses. They do have material and they do sell the, some of the material that they have. They don't sell it in as large a volumes as they did 10, 20 years ago when they were mostly printed. It's The videos and stuff are digitally available now and people can just download them. And uh, he says it costs them more to produce the material and to have it available online than they actually get in revenue back from selling the printed material. But they sell. I have absolutely no problem believing that. So I'm, I'm not even going to bother challenging that. I'm absolutely certain that Mark is telling me the truth on that. He says the income that, that Alpha get is primarily donations. And that we also spoke about the work that they do in prisons. And I have to be honest, I was a little bit surprised about this. I, I thought that the prison system would at least offer them money for some of what they do. But no, the work that people do uh, for Alpha, or rather the work Alpha do in prisons is usually at the discretion of people associated with the prison, say a prison chaplain or a member of staff uh, at the prison or somebody in the local vicinity who volunteers to go into the prison to do anything with, with the prisoners. And it is all voluntary. The, the prison system doesn't pay Alpha for any of that. Um, and I'd say I, I was quite surprised by that. I thought that it would all come under rehabilitation budgets from the prison's but no, there is no money from the prison system on that. And then there was another thing, I think it was you that brought that up, uh, Darren, when we were talking about the um, uh, affiliate links that you can get from Amazon. Mark was quite surprised when he heard you talk about that on the episode. And he it, he was completely unaware that that was even an option. That's the impression I got from what he said to me anyway. So he said he is absolutely not aware that they receive any money from those affiliate links. All they've done is put a button and created a direct link to the book. So if there is somebody at, at Alpha who's organized for any kind of that, that kickback from Amazon to go into Alpha, Mark isn't aware of it. So I'm prepared to believe him that they just haven't done that and that it's just a, a link on that. So I think the summary is, in terms of finances, Alpha don't make money from running the, the courses. The, the costs of running Alpha come from the donations to Alpha from the Christians who support Alpha and, and give it to them as part of their charitable giving. So that's my feedback on finances. Any points from the conversation that you guys wanted to pick up or comment on the finances? I think uh, it'd be interesting to know how much donation comes in. It's not a number I'm willing to try to pursue. Just because I'm uh, a person interested in numbers, it would be interesting to know what sort of donations come in as a result of, of contact with Alpha. But that's a general curiosity about donations, not a specific curiosity about Alpha. And like I said, wouldn't be willing to really query it on my own. So. Yeah, it didn't even occur to me to ask Mark that question. I pretty much took the attitude of if Christians are donating to Alpha, I'm not even going to bother asking about the mechanics behind it. Yeah, we talked a bit about demographics in the the part one 
conversation and we were speculating on demographics of people who take alpha and you know what sort of people are because we were all commenting and i think tony you confirmed by email that it's the same for you that you know we're all the only atheists uh, or out atheists on uh, on the groups that we're in or although on me i'm one of two uh, and by far the the majority of the people on the courses that we do are Christians and Mark felt that that was probably typical. They, they don't have a demographic focus. The, the intention of Alpha is to be as light and as friendly face as, as possible. So it's very possible that as a result of the, that kind of nature that of the intent of Alpha, that people like ourselves who want something chunky to to really get our teeth into and to really battle about a specific point for a long period of time that isn't going to be a feature of the kind of person that gets attracted to alpha so that was kind of the speculation there so mark wasn't overly surprised uh, by that but they don't keep a a detailed demographic of the people who who attend alpha they've got very much a non-contact policy with alpha to so that if somebody wants to dip in decide to stop for them and dip out they they can be confident in doing that that they haven't gone into a system of tick boxes and, and stuff and that their, their data is is going anywhere so that's kind of the attitude that alpha taker are very much a hands-off and that hands-off means they don't have a large amount of data of all the people who are taking their alpha which i kind of one found of the, intriguing one of the things that that i that I find fascinating about this particular point well, in you and Mark's conversation is that Alpha is a light and friendly version of Christianity intended for first contact. I'm, I'm fine with that. Uh, I'm, I'm fine with the first biology class that children take to be a light and friendly version of, of biology that is uh, pretty palatable. It's easy to consume, right? But it seems to me that one of the one of the very curious aspects of of Christianity is that this is what Christianity puts out front is this thing that that doesn't have built into it any kind of skepticism, right? It's it's this light friendly version of Christianity. You know, it's a uh, you know it's it's Christianity Kool Aid, right? And I I have to wonder. Why isn't there a companion alpha for the skeptic? So, so I understand that there are plenty of people who are going to come to Christianity this, this sort of way, where they just uh, consume other people's testimonies relatively uncritically. But surely there should be something like alpha over the course of time that HTB has done alpha. Have they really not found a demand for uh, an alpha X sort of course for the people who are uh, demanding skeptics? and would prefer their introduction to Christianity to be uh, something a little more meaty. That seems to me that that ought to be a warning sign to anybody that wants to think critically about this subject. Yeah. yeah I, I think that they may not have a, like a stated demographic, but from watching the videos, I really think their target audience is those people that are going through troubles at the moment. I don't know if anyone's really noticed, but have you ever noticed that religion really thrives when people are having a hard time? And then when when things are going great, religion sort of dies away. Hmm. Uh, 
it's one of the main reasons why religions are flourishing and like uh, why Christianity is growing in places like um, Africa, where there's a lot of civil war and strife. But in the first world countries, it's uh, on a pretty steep decline. Mm-hmm. And if you watch the videos, um, at least for the ones I've seen, I've seen a very um, marked marked trend to going for those people that are um, really going through a tough time or looking for, you know, meaning or, you know, just any of that. And it, mm-hmm. I, I think that's sort of what their target demographic is. Now, that seems right to me, too. There's a lot of appeal emotionally in, in regard to Christianity, but it's also one of Christianity's biggest picadillos, uh, isn't it? Because when we start to ask questions about, uh, uh, about sin and suffering, it tends to be one of the top few reasons that people eventually walk away from Christianity. They, uh, uh, they have a problem reconciling an all-loving God with that same God who would take most of his children and lock them in the basement and burn them forever. Yeah, actually, that was a question I was going to ask. Do, does anyone know if um, Nikki's denomination teaches the uh, hell torture type mythology, or are they mostly a annihilationist group? I, I would guess annihilationist. Nikki is uh, Anglican, which is Church of England, and that tends to be more liberal end of Christianity. But that doesn't mean that there won't be pockets within the Anglican tradition, which are a little bit more fundamentalist than others, because there's a huge broad spectrum within the Anglican tradition. You'll have the high church Anglican, which um, could be termed smells and bells, where it really is, it's almost Catholic in in the way that it approaches it. And then you'll get the kind of the more free church type Anglican, where they've taken the pews out, they've got chairs instead, they've got guitars and a drum kit up at the front of the church and there will be praying in tongues there will be prayer for healing so you might find eternal conscious torment in in that kind of church but it will probably be annihilation in the higher church yeah because it makes the it makes the their pitch that they're making sort of different depending on which one they're going for um because i mean if you're being saved you know the whole message of I forget whether it was three or four now, uh, was that you're, you know, I think it was three because Jesus died on the cross so that you could be saved. And the question becomes saved from what? Because, you know, eternal torment is a lot, something much bigger to be saved from than, you know, just dying and not being, living forever. Yeah, that's a good question. And in the group that I'm in, when hell has been discussed, there's a, variety of of opinions within the small within the christians within the small group that that i'm in i think there's one person who who doesn't even think that the um, i hope i'm remembering correctly one person who doesn't think that hell or the devil even exist and right the way through to to someone who who i think believes in in hell being torture hasn't been said explicitly outright but I, i think there might be one that goes so i think the, the spectrum is pretty much covered in the small group that I'm in. I can't believe they don't think I exist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe you'll be wishing you don't exist come the end of this. <laughs> so, 
Matthew, does that get us pretty well down to the bottom of um, of your conversation with Mark? Uh, well, there was another thing on about the drop-off rates when I, so we talked oh, talk yeah. about drop-off rate, and he said the drop-off rate tends to be in the in the church groups that they do it could be, be is about between twenty five percent and thirty, and uh, we said between a quarter and a third, so twenty five percent, thirty three percent. So that mm. tends to be about typical for a drop off rate. And you know, the end, the last week has always got fewer people than than the first week did. And so when I reported to him that I think there's two or three that have dropped off mine, but we gained one, I think, in about the third week. And he said that's that seems to be about typical to. Uh, what happens when they do the physical alpha in the churches. So I don't know how that's worked with your groups, uh, Andrew and Tony. It's a, um, that's yeah, about right for us. Yeah, sorry, Tony, go ahead. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, we've, oh. we've sort of lost a few and, and gained a few. Already at four weeks in, that's already started to happen, yeah. It certainly has, yeah. I guess one last point here uh, in regard to the kind of thing that alpha is, this sort of introduction to Christianity. One of the things that, that I've noticed that that most disturbs me, and Tony, I'd be interested to, to hear whether you're having the same experience in, in your group. Uh, one of the things that most disturbs me is that my group leader is not encouraging any kind of critical thinking about the personal stories that are relayed uh, into the group. So we have... Um, we have some people who, uh, uh, well, at least one person that apparently has some voodoo in this person's background mixed in with this person's Christianity. Uh, my group leader uh, has defended that uh, God uh, performs more miracles or seems to perform more miracles in non-Western countries. Uh, my uh, there was a defense of God and miracles last week <laughs> through the placebo effect. And, and so oh, these are just a few examples of the sorts of things that are being invited in under the tent of Christianity uh, in my group. And so there seems to be a total acceptance of anything that anyone can call Christianity uh, seems to be invited in uh, to Alpha. And it reminds me of that old saying, something that tries to explain everything ends up explaining nothing. And so I've been very concerned. There's, there's no, there's, uh, it, it's almost as if critical thinking is anathema to the group that I am in. And even if my group leader would say that it is not, there has been absolutely no challenge by any Christian to any other Christian of any story relate, no matter how cockamamie. Uh, and if the and if you know if it's important, I can relay some of the right wing nut sorts of things that have been offered in my group, like Bill Gates uh, working on a secret project to put codes inside people's hands, and this is you know this is part of the Book of Revelation, and Bill Gates is <sighs> yeah, no, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Uh... I, I, I mean the the rightest wing nut um, possible cockamamie conspiracy theories, and there's been no challenge. Not from Christians, not from group leaders. Uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates is part of the whole Bilderberg complex. You would not, you would not believe the stuff that's been offered with no challenge. Wow. And so that that is a real that is a real red flag to me uh, as a skeptic. Tony, have you do do people are they as open in your group about offering conspiracy theories and and not and is anybody challenging them if they are? 
No, haven't heard any of that kind of stuff. It's really just been quite a halting conversation in response to the questions that are asked. Um, there's been no challenge amongst the Christians. There's been no challenge to anything I've said even. So uh, it's all very subdued, really. Mm. Matthew, have you have you encountered any of that sort of? No, nothing. My group is is wonderfully British and middle class and tea drinking the proper way. It's 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 quite lovely. <laughs> I I'm going to miss. I I am. I'm I'm genuinely going to miss the guys in the in the group I'm in. Yeah, we disagree quite fundamentally uh, about Christianity, and but we disagree in the way that it appears that. Only middle-class English people can disagree. You know, there's there's been no statues thrown into rivers or or anything. We've, we've all been terribly polite, um, but no, none of the kind of stuff that that you've mentioned has has come up. And um, but but Tony, in the terms of pushback and challenge uh, on some things, uh, I think wait a little bit, weeks. You you guys are still feeling each other out, and yeah, and and still still working your way through it it's got to the point i think the best conversation that i had was literally last week the very last formal week of, of alpha and and a couple of people pushed back to uh onto me quite strongly and um and we had a great dialogue and we had a session of about it felt like 20 minutes it was probably only about five but it was real ask matthew any question uh, session and uh, and I loved it and they threw some really good uh, some really challenging questions at me and, and what if this happened and what if that happened and uh, do you believe this and I, I loved it. it it was great because you know I, I knew that these guys respected me but I knew that they wanted to wanted to push and I think it those kinds of questions work better right towards the end when you've got a little bit more of a of a trust for people and you and you know the intent behind people's questions, so I think yeah. the questions will come, Tony. But I think you just need a few more weeks to to settle down with the with the people that you're with, and that's why I'm going to dial in tomorrow for for the the first post alpha checkup call because I, I'm hoping for something similar again. Hmm. Yeah, so, I shall look forward to that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So, uh, but yeah, I don't know how I would respond, Andrew, if somebody came up with, with something like that. People have said things that I, I completely disagree, which I thought were either wrong or mistaken, but they're highly personal things. And I'm really reluctant to to come in with sceptical boots and crush those. But with something like you were saying about the Bill Gates thing, which is clearly just wrong, I, I don't know how I would respond if, if somebody in my group had said that. So I'm really, really glad that they haven't, because it would be really off-putting and distracting if what if somebody had. Well, and and so in this particular case, it was worse than that for me, because the next thing that happens is, and and this lady just says, uh, I don't know why people don't believe it. If you just read the Book of Revelation, you know that it's true. <laughs> yeah. And well, that's. I, that's sort of the Nikki's uh, whole argument throughout the whole thing, too. So, yeah, I well, so for the for the Christian listeners that um, that are, are still hanging in there, uh, you can attribute almost any worldview to the Book of Revelation. 
And uh, if you think that you have the proper understanding of the book of Revelation, uh, I took a couple of classes um, uh, that included the book of Revelation in college. And I'd love to get on mic right here on Still Unbelievable and have a discussion with you about the book of Revelation, major and minor prophets, uh, uh, apocalyptic writing. Uh, so if you, if you think that that can be easily explained, easily understood, uh, I genuinely would like to have that conversation. And I will give Darren his devil hat before we get on mic and we will, and we will have uh, uh, as nice a conversation it is, as it is possible to have. But uh, I don't, I, I genuinely don't think that you can get these kinds of things out of the book of Revelation. Uh, Bill Gates fulfilling uh, Revelation 13, 18, that supposed prophecy about, uh, you know, putting barcodes in people's hands or what. I really don't think that is a defensible position. And if you do, I really would like to have a conversation. All right. Um, so, Matthew, does that take us into week four? Three. We, um, three. Week three. Yes, it, it does. But, uh, yeah, just to finalize that, yeah, Mark was re really great and open and, and honest with me as much as he could be and answered my questions yeah, yeah, quite quite openly. And um, I, I think he, he did say quite honestly to me that you know, the, the kind of level of sceptical atheist that, that we are on this call, we're probably not going to get what we want from Alpha or, or what we're looking for from Alpha yeah, because we're we're probably not the right people to, to engage with Alpha. It's meant to be for an introduction to people who aren't familiar with Christianity, and we're all familiar with Christianity. So I think that bit on its own just shows that Alpha probably isn't the right thing for us. And you know, we like to pick up a a subject and, and run with it and have a good old gnaw on it for for two hours, uh, in, including diversions, and, and, and really get what juice and, and cook it as much as we can. And Alpha isn't designed for that kind of conversation. So I think that's the only thing that I would uh, finish off with, with the conversation I had with Mark. You know, it was a reminder that, you know, although Alpha doesn't have a formal demographic with the way that it's designed and the way that it's put out, we're not going to be an attractive demographic for the way that it's designed. Probably the most reasonable criticism of what we've done so far right, is that Alpha may really not be structured for us. That may be quite a, uh, that may be quite a reasonable critique. So. Yeah, and I, I, I fully accept that, but we're going to continue with this road and with this analysis, because I think it'll be an interesting thing to do. And listeners, I'm quite happy for you to feedback on, on any way uh, on that. Um, going back to the weeks, I'd like to just rewind a little bit bits because we're, in the last episode that we do we did a, a lot of general chat and we didn't go into a huge amount of meat for the first two episodes so I'd like to pick up something that was mentioned on week two because I've re-watched the first four episodes uh, today in the in the run-up to this and there was a mention of a of a quote from somebody in week two about halfway through the episode uh, a chap called uh, FJ Hort doing a quote about the the reliability of of the New Testament uh, text, and this was immediately after they talked in that episode about textual criticism. And anyway, I went and looked this chap up. This chap is from the mid 1800s, you know, about 1850-ish. You know, we really need much more modern and up-to-date 
historians about things like this, pulling out a quote that works with our narrative that's close to 200 years old isn't really the best way to try to add some kind of authenticity to an ancient text. Our understanding of ancient texts has changed enormously in 200 years. We need to be able to do better than that for analysis of, of ancient texts. One of his close contemporaries would be someone like David Hume, who rightly said at the time, uh, you know, I would that he would always accept the lesser miracle, uh, meaning that if you are faced with a, a claim that someone that something broke the laws of nature, right, you would have to decide whether the laws of nature were actually broken or whether it was more likely that the individual was deceived. And so, even if you you know, even if you want to to spin this narrative based on um, based on uh, thoughts from a couple hundred years ago, even, uh, or 150 years ago, near enough. Uh, even contemporaries of that time questioned that kind of thinking, right? And and so I'm not sure that that is uh, any more than any more than quote mining. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on that from uh, uh, two other guests before we move on to week three? Um, only that it's pretty typical. Um... I had someone, once we were talking about dualism, and they pulled a quote from a neuroscientist that was has been dead for like 70 years. And they thought that because he uh, had some great ideas in one area that his argument should also apply to what we were talking about. And it's the same situation that in neuroscience, our understanding has grown by leaps and bounds in the last 40 years. So any conclusions made 70 years ago with uh, incomplete information is not really relevant, and I find that that's pretty common. Even in the uh, first or second course, when they list all the scientists, they were all scientists that were in in a lived in a time and place where if you weren't Christian, uh, you were just as easily to get killed as not. So, right, um, and so yes. I think that's one of supposedly one of the hallmarks of uh, pseudoscience, isn't it? The the quoting of of authorities from long gone by. Um, mm. so, uh, yeah. yeah, I think I think there is sort of a uh, it's it's probably an interesting uh, an interesting thing to kick around just just for a moment. There is a sort of uh, thing that Christians do where they glom on to some scientific idea as if it is somehow a, a knockdown argument, as if it is somehow some absolute proof. But, but science is not in the business of absolute proof. Science is in the business of exploration. And so you can almost always tell when a Christian misunderstands science when they say science has proven. You're almost wrong-footed right off the uh, right off the bat, because science isn't in the business of proof; it's in the business of, of exploration. And if you're if you're proposing some sort of idea in science without a way to disconfirm the conclusion that you're attaching to that idea, you're not doing science; you're doing pseudoscience. Yeah, you can sort of tell the same thing when they start talking about historical facts. Oh, and that yeah, Ken Ken Ham and Bill Nye. Uh, just as just as one example, if, uh, we won't go in and uh, chase it down, but uh, watch the debate. If you if you haven't seen the Ham Nye debate, there's really good examples of uh, of, of uh, Ken Ham using uh, historic fact 
and uh, and pitting it against science. Week three. Why did Jesus die? And I think for me, in my post-Christian years, looking back, it is the part of Christianity that I I find the the least cohesive. It's the bit that I the the claims that I find the hardest to engage with. It's I want to understand the mechanics of how this works you know why is a sin that i do and that's let's ignore the whole matter of how you define what is a sin why is the sin that i do now uh, the reason why this chap who i'm unconvinced even existed died two thousand years ago so that i can go to a place that i don't believe exists you know all attempts to try to eke out some description of the mechanics of how this works just don't get anywhere so i found this episode the um the one that i i was going to say understood the least that's that's not true i did understand it because i used to believe it it's just i engaged with the least well and it it makes me want to ask um because all religions have their own devotees. You can ask, why did Jesus die? And that's a perfectly fine question. But you should equally ask, why did Muhammad die? Why did Joseph Smith die? Why did Jim Jones die? Why did David Koresh die? Why did any religious figure from any religion die? And what does that have to do with a, an actual demonstration that the claims of that religion are true? And... Um, the the Jesus death story doesn't get started for me any more than Muhammad or Moses or pick any religious figure. I, uh, people die. That's what we do. And uh, you can attach any story that you want to, to a person's death. The story might even be true, but we're not actually being asked on the back of this the death of the Jesus character. That's That's not actually the 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 relevant bit that Christianity wants you to believe. It wants you to go on and believe that there's a resurrection and an ascension behind that death. And the story after the death gets exceedingly silly on the back of the idea that that this guy uh, died and, and because they couldn't find his body where they expected it, uh, he rose and ascended. And it just you just can't get started for me that way. Yeah, and it makes even less sense if there's no eternal torture chamber to be saved from. Well, and I've, I've said this before, and and I will simply say it once again here. Uh, if you can turn water to wine, or feed the 5,000, or raise someone from the dead, or whatever, <coughs> excuse me, that tells you absolutely nothing about the central claims of Christianity. It doesn't tell you whether there's a God that can live forever. It doesn't tell you whether that God has the ability to impart everlasting life to people that he favors. It doesn't tell you anything about whether he maintains or does not maintain an eternal torture chamber for the people that he doesn't choose. It doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't tell you uh, about his uh, capacity to rightly judge perfectly those things that he considers right and wrong, whether he should have, uh, uh, whether he should do that particular thing. It, it does, even if you think some guy was raised from the dead, even if you really believe that, you've got all of your work ahead of you to make that claim equal the central claims that Christianity wants you to believe, that there's a God that created the universe and all the rest of it. 
Well, it does do some confirmation, though. For example, um, if you're claiming that God is love, and then you're claiming that uh, having yourself slash your son killed on a cross to forgive people is love, then we already know that that God doesn't exist. Because that's just not what love is. Um, right. So, so it does, it's anti-confirmation in some, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's orthogonal to the story that the Christian actually wants you to believe. And so I, I agree that, I, I agree that those details are important. It just doesn't get started the thing that the Christian wants us to believe. During that episode, Nikki told the story from uh, one of the World War concentration camps about Maximilian Kobe, do you guys know, you guys remember that story or do I need to relate it to you? Does that help at all put into a sense the, the picture of what the Christianity is trying to tell about the death of Jesus? Tell the listeners the story just so that they can follow the conversation. So the story of Maximilian Kobe, and it's a beautiful story. Well, beautiful is not the right word. It's a tragic story of self-sacrifice to to benefit somebody else and you know i am not in any way denigrating the the act the sacrificial act of this chapter let's get that one out there it, it is a terrible story and it's a sad story so it's a story from one of the german concentration camps during world war Two. something happened so the germans decided that there needs to be some retribution for this thing that happened and they picked 10 people arbitrarily in this concentration camp and they were going to put them into a starvation bunker which basically means they're locked in and they have no food probably very little fresh air either until they just die of not enough sustenance one of the people that was picked to go in it begged for some form of mercy because he had wife and children so this gentleman maximilian kobe who was apparently i think a catholic priest who had no blood relations who were necessarily going to miss him offered to go in this gentleman's stead the the offer was accepted so maximilian went in instead and the person survived the whose place he took survived the war but there was a a postscript to this story which left me feeling uncomfortable and that was apparently and it was attributed to the actions of maximilian kobe there was singing and there was praise in that bunker in the days before they died and i think that actually their death was hastened by lethal injection because they needed the bunker for something else which is an extra sadness to a story but it was it was that bit about singing and and praise bit which which turned for me if the story would be better for me without that bit. I think that that singing for me turns what is a tragic story of self-sacrifice into something that's bleak and, and even worse. Uh, but, but anyway, so that's the story. For me, it doesn't, it doesn't describe for me adequately the uh, death of Jesus on the cross and what he did. It, it doesn't adequately get to me the, what Christians are trying to tell me about Jesus' sacrifice, but it does tell you about a story of genuine sacrifice. I see where they're coming from on that, on why they, they think it works so well for them. Where it falls apart for me is that in order to make the analogy actually work properly, you have to accept that God created the, um, the starvation chamber, created the the lethal injection, created the rules that someone had to die, had to go into this starvation chamber. He had to do all of that. And then 
it makes um, Maximilian's sacrifice completely meaningless because had God not created the um, starvation chamber, had he not created the lethal injection, had he not created the rules that required all this, the sacrifice wouldn't be needed in the first place. So, I've got a similar problem. The concentration camps, for all of us here know this, um, most of the listeners will. The concentration camps, um, lots of those people were Jews. Not all of them by any means, but, but lots of them were Jews. So fine, you've got these, you've got these people in, in an awful, awful situation. You're starving them to death. They sing, um, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe they sing songs of praise. So which ones were Christians and which ones weren't? And which ones of them got accepted and which ones didn't he? And what do the songs of praise have to do with it? So I completely accept that Maximilian did uh, a great thing. Look, he, he gave his life so that uh, some other wrongly tortured people could hopefully see their family one day. And just to be clear, I would absolutely support there being a statue of him for that act. I, I, am, I am absolutely on board with that. Look, it, it was a, a monumental kind of sacrifice. It is the kind of sacrifice that, uh, that we see certain types of our archetypal heroes, they do these things every day. But you go on to, to these songs of praise and, and all of that sort of thing, and it unravels for me. So he sacrificed, and some people benefited from that sacrifice. But thinking about the story a little critically, did any of the people that died in that chamber benefit from his sacrifice? And when they were singing songs of praise, if indeed they did, did God accept all of them? Because that's not the Christian story that I read about, uh, about Jews. Christianity replaced Judaism. So when we tell that story, if there were still people in, in that death chamber who were Jews, did Christian God accept them because they were in horrible circumstances? I don't think so. That's not the story that I read, and it's not the story that Christians tell. There's an organization in London, it probably exists elsewhere in the world, called Jews for Jesus, and it's a Christian organization. And it exists because there are Christians who strongly believe that Jews won't be and can't be saved. They need to become Christians to be saved. So maybe we need to ask those Christians, would the Jews in that bunker with Maximilian Kobe, would they have been saved? Right. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not knocking his sacrifice at all. I'm just saying that the rest of that story, I found it a little spoiled. So, yeah, there it is. Tony, did that illustration work for you at all? No, I mean, the thing it really misses out is, you know, you've got the substitutionary death there, you've got someone dying in place of someone else, but you haven't got the mechanism by which any sins are forgiven. That's, that's missing from the analogy completely. And you've got people, of course, other people dying around the whole place all the time. That, that you know, it's all death, and um, it's a very bleak picture. I don't, I don't think that um, it really answers the question at all. You know, there's an old, uh, there's an old gospel song. The three of you may know it. Um, one of the lines is, "He could have called ten thousand angels to destroy the world and set yeah. it free." 
Well, in this story, in the Maximilian story, Jesus already paid the price. The sacrifice has been paid. These songs of praise that were supposedly sung, did any angels come? Did any angels... Uh, you know, did any did any angels save these people? It doesn't seem so. I, and I get wanting to sing something spiritual potentially at the end of a life or whatever under horrible circumstances. You hope that someone will come rescue you. You're doing anything you can do to uh, sort of maintain your, your own mental equilibrium. I'm not knocking any of that. What I am saying is it doesn't appear that singing these spiritual songs actually did them any good. Jesus already paid the price. Why is it being paid over again in Nazi Germany? I think the other thing that niggles at me from, from this illustration is if you compare the way Christians feel about their salvation from Jesus on the cross, it's one of joy. You ask Christians about it. They're ecstatic about that idea. It's, a, it's always happy. But trying to put myself in the man who who was saved by Maximilian Kobe. I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong anyway, having just realized this. I think every time I remembered that I was alive because of him, there would be a hint of sadness, having the knowledge of what he went through and being in that same camp. I wouldn't be able to escape the sight of that bunker for however long he was in there before he was given the lethal injection, probably heard what was going on there. That knowledge and that memory, I'm pretty sure, would haunt me for the rest of my life. Yes, I would be happy that I lived, but it wouldn't be an ecstatic happiness. There would be a tinge of sadness every single time. I'm pretty sure that's the kind of person I am. I'm pretty sure that's how I would be for the rest of my life. And, of course, one of the things, Nicky Gumbel, I think it was in that um, video, talked about um, the fact that there was no need for guilt and no need for shame and I think obviously from what you've just said that certainly wouldn't be the case in that situation and that, that guy would probably felt guilt and shame for the rest of his life so that's another way in which it doesn't really illustrate the points that, that Keith Gamble was making yeah potentially I, I picked up on that comment and I didn't really quite get I guess the the no guilt thing should be because of having everything that you've done forgiven, being forgiven. There should be no feeling of guilt. I think, I think that's what I'm saying. But it gets down to the whole mechanism of how does the sin create a, a situation? Because he likens sin to poison, I think, at one point. What is the mechanism at, at work here? And this is a bit that I want to see an answer to. I, I need to be able to, to know how that works. I can't just be told these these overarching facts i i want more detail and i think this is part of my problem with this part of the christian message is i don't really get what's going on yeah and of course the other point about it is that um this this idea of a of penal substitutionary atonement is just one christian theory of the atonement i'm not sure how many there are four or five maybe um, so it seems that the Christians themselves can't actually decide how it works. And the ones that believe the wrong one are obviously heretics. I want to go after that for a second because that is, that's really important. 
every religion that I'm aware of, maybe not enough of them, but every religion I'm familiar with has its martyrs. And so it, it doesn't seem that we're, that we should be saying on the basis of, of, a, a, of a sacrifice like Maximilian that somehow a religious story is true. Because it's not just Christianity that has its martyrs for the cause. And so in some way, while I agree that, that Maximilian did something heroic, he spent his life to allow someone else to have theirs. That's, that's pretty close to our definition of hero when it doesn't also cause an atrocity. Uh, and, and so he did something, he did something that we would all look up to. But surely, surely we should still leave our skeptical hats firmly in place and ask the question, what does that have to do with a demonstration that the Christian story is true? Well, there's not only that, but in the Christian story, get, Jesus didn't actually give his life for anything. See, um, see, you've got your you've got your horn hat on. And that's, <laughs> okay, go, no, no, follow that. That's a that's a good thought. Well, because I mean, what makes um, Maximilian a hero is because he actually had no control over what he what was going on around him, and he did the one thing he did have control over, which was to make a decision to place someone else's life above his because he felt they had value and he wanted to express that in a way that was very what we would consider very heroic and very noble in the jesus tale of his sacrifice he didn't actually sacrifice anything he wasn't he he was not in a position where he had no control he had ultimate control because from what i can tell uh nikki sort of believes that jesus is god so we have this setup where God created the rules, and apparently one of his rules was he needed to have a blood sacrifice of himself so that he can forgive people and have them go to heaven. So you've got this weird thing where they're calling what Jesus did a sacrifice when, yes, if a human was doing it, that's what we would call it as a sacrifice. We'd call it really noble. The problem is, is that... Jesus wasn't a human. He was God who created the rules in the first place, rules that didn't actually have to exist. And then it wasn't like he gave up his life. He went down uh, and had a bad weekend and is now back in heaven. And My he didn't, actually, and he didn't actually change anything. All he did was give God an excuse to give people eternal life, apparently. Wanted to follow that 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 idea that he had a bad weekend. My hermeneutics teacher uh, in college, and for the um, uh, for the folks who aren't familiar with that um, rather archaic word, hermeneutics is the uh, is the study of right division of the Bible. Okay, so it's it's uh, it's an attempt to apply logical principles to divine truths within the pages of the Old and New Testament. My hermeneutics teacher did not actually think that Jesus suffered a bad weekend at all. Uh, Hadean realm, he's, he's completely, uh, was completely, he passed away years and years ago. He was, uh, he was on board with the idea that Jesus died and he visited the Hadean realm, but he was of the opinion that heaven and hell are both part of the Hadean realm and that Jesus ended up actually spending what could not possibly be described as three days, but we will have a show on that some other time. This, this incredibly short three days 
uh, were not actually spent in hell, but in a non-punishment part of the Hadean realm. Well, if you're an nihilist, that makes sense because there's no hell to actually go to. Uh, I wish he'd been an nihilist. Uh, maybe, maybe it made my Christianity, but but, but he wasn't. He was, he was a cult leader. Uh, sorry, truth. <laughs> it just happens to be the case. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've really got a problem with the Maximilian story. I, I really do. I don't. I don't think we can learn anything important from the story, except that Maximilian did something that was worthy of respect. Well, I, I was just going to say, I don't think Nicky meant it to be uh, something that we learned from. I think he was using it as a litmus test. You know, Maximilian did mm. this great thing by sacrificing himself for this other person. And that's why we can say that Jesus did this great thing for sacrificing himself for us. I don't think there was uh, this great message that we're supposed to learn from it. That's possible. Now, I, might, I, 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 I would draw it, it even, even stronger than that, is if we think that Maximilian is so awesome for having done what he did, how much more awesome should we consider Jesus to be for what he did? Right. Yeah, well, I will, uh, I will simply ask people to, remind, uh, to rewind about three minutes and listen to what Darren said. <laughs> yeah, because for, for Maximilian Kobe, his act cost him everything forever in that moment, whereas the cost for Jesus wasn't quite so severe. Yeah. So, th but this still would put me in a place where I couldn't side with the Christian God. Uh, if, if heroic acts are supposed to mean anything. Um, and so he actually gives up his life. Uh, something that we, by human standards, is, is something by which we would judge an ethical act to be uh, a pro-social act, right? So Maximilian gives up everything, right? And the reason we think that is important is because by our normal social values, we can say that, uh, that it's something to be emulated at the proper time and place. But if the Christian God, is, if, if you can't say Nikki is using this in some way to also make an appeal to the Christian God. If you're saying that on the back of these sorts of heroic sacrifices, the Christian God would be willing to stand aside and send those people to hell because they didn't uh, hold some particular doctrine in reverence, then, then it still doesn't apply to the Christian God. So it, sure, if, Jesus, uh, if, if Jesus's sacrifice is going to mean anything, and we're going to compare it to Maximilian, then the Christian God has to stand behind Maximilian and make that sacrifice worth something. If he doesn't, he's not a God I can support. So let me just ask you directly, all three of you, if God sends Maximilian to hell, can you support that God? No, but you don't need to give me that dilemma to ask me the question. Well, Come on, man. You got, you got to sort of, uh, so you, you want know, me to I, engage, honestly? No, I, I don't think I could. Okay, but so that is for me the problem. Even if even if Darren's right, and I'm sure he absolutely is right, that that Nikki is not using this uh, as an as a direct appeal to Christianity, it should still invite our criticism if it doesn't apply, because God's a moral monster if He makes Maximilian's sacrifice. Uh, worthless 
by allowing him to be condemned for eternity. Yeah, well, I, I'm of the opinion that if the hell exists, then there's no such thing as a loving God, period, regardless of whether Maximilian goes there or not. Yeah, yeah I'm, so I'm, on the same, I'm on board with that too. If, if there is such a thing as hell, it's incompatible with a loving God. I'm absolutely there. That includes annihilation, by the way. I, I don't just mean uh, the fiery hell. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, annihilation, I don't know. I go back and forth on that one. There was another story, a similar emotional story in this episode on, on week three, uh, and it was touching on the other aspect of of uh, what happened, what the big message of Christianity on the cross, and that is forgiveness. So it wasn't just about Jesus' sacrifice, it was about God's forgiveness of our sins. And this is another area of Christianity, which looking back on it now that I've exited, I I just don't get how it's supposed to work. I want to know more than just the headlines. I want to know the detail. I want to know the fine print. And I just don't see it. And again, Nikki rolled out a a story here to illustrate this. And there's a sting in, in this story because I did a bit of extra checking. Um, and I hope it's not going to get me a lot of hate mail because I know that... Corrie Ten Boom is really sainted by a great number of Christians uh, around the world. I was brought up as a young child on the legend that is Corrie Ten Boom. My, at story time at boarding school in Zambia, the teachers would read from her book, The Hiding Place. So I, I know the story of Corrie Ten Boom. I've known it from a very, very young age. And um, in this episode, the, the story of her you know, after the war, going and telling the story about about the war comes out, and we've got audio of her talking about this in in the episode, and she is confronted by by a guard from from this uh, concentration camp that she was in. I'm looking through my notes now for the name of the concentration camp, and I can't see it. So someone shout it out if you you can see it my my apologies for not having it here in front of me in my notes but anyway so the, the one of the guards that was at this concentration camp came up to her at the end of this talk and um she knew she recognized him before he'd even got to her and he said that uh, he'd become a become a christian and uh, the this story is about Cory ten boom being faced with this presence which basically symbolized all the horrors probably evil let's use that word evil that that went on you know a a symbol deserving of of utter disgust and there he is standing in front of her saying i've become a christian i i can't remember what was reported about what he said now can you forgive me or, or whatever and she uh, reports about how she could not uh, forgive and I, I think maybe later she did. My my memory's gone hazy now already this afternoon. Um, but the the, this, the whole point of the story was her, her difficulty in being able to forgive the horrors that went on when faced in front of her, uh, her by this guard saying that you know, he was standing in front of her, just a humble man, you know, having become a Christian. And I think, again, this is similar to the Maximilian Kobe story. You know, if... Corrie Ten Boom, a gentle lady who did all these wonderful things before the war and suffered terribly and lost her sister and her father during the war and came out. You know, if if she can say how much she struggled with forgiveness in that moment, you know, then it's okay for us to admit that we struggle with it too. But Jesus 
did it. God did it. God forgives us when we deserve the same. And again, I think that that story loses power when you try to try to do that. And it doesn't communicate to me anything about the strength of, of God's forgiveness. And it doesn't communicate to me any way in which I should celebrate being forgiven by God. Because let's face it, and I, because I know Darren's going to say this, so I'm going to jump in our, in our head. God created the scenario by which we were pronounced guilty. So why should his forgiveness actually mean anything? You know me so well. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, it's it's... Perfect. And I would even go farther than that. You know, Christians talk about having free will, and it's more of a, uh, it's less compatibilist, compatibilist uh, free will and more of a libertarian free will. And the story starts falling apart at that point because she was saying that God gave her the strength to forget, you know, she couldn't forgive him, but God could forgive him. So did God override her free will to force that forgiveness on her? Or, I mean, I was never clear about that part of the story when um, people start talking about God giving you strength and that kind of thing. Maybe you guys can enlighten Interesting. me. Interesting. I don't have a, a solution to that dilemma. I'm sorry, Darren. It's a part of the problem I have with the whole free will thing. And you know me, I deny free will exists anyway. So I have a problem with the Christian idea of forgiveness to begin with. Not the, not the substitutionary atonement bit of this thing, but I am not sure that uh, we should forgive every kind of wrong that can be done. Now, I can hear our Christian listeners criticizing me for uh, wallowing in something like hate or, or something like that. That is not at all what I'm saying. Uh, what I am saying is that I am fine with certain kinds of things that we can do to each other. Being the kind of thing that someone has to live with as long as the victim has to live with it. That doesn't mean wallowing in hate, but it also doesn't mean the sort of sappy Christian forgiveness that we sometimes hear about. And so I just, uh, I got some of this in our, uh, in my small group. Uh, Christians mean a lot of different things by forgiveness. It was not at all clear in, in my small group that there was a consensus on what sort of forgiveness Christians should practice. And so before I can even agree to a notion of Christian forgiveness, there's got to be a consensus about what that actually means and about how it's implemented. And, uh, and then I'm, I'm still not sure that, that I would practice it. There are some things, uh, well, even, even the Christian God apparently has an unforgivable sin. So not my fault. I didn't write his story. Um, you know, a whole bunch of people long ago wrote that story. Even even the Christian God has a has at least one thing that he won't forgive. And I'm not sure that that uh, my list is probably longer, but I'm not sure that I'm okay with the Christian idea of forgiveness. So if you've got one and you want to promote that idea, uh, again, I will let Darren keep his hat. And let's talk about what the idea of forgiveness actually means, because I'm not sure it's very coherent at the moment. Um, from what I got from the story, from what the video was, is he was mostly talking about forgiveness as a way to um, get rid of that obsession that some people have um, when they're gnawing on uh, a wrong that's been done to them. I'm not entirely sure it was a 
uh, necessarily a um, abdication, an abdication on the person that did wrongs, you know, for what they did wrong. And I think it was more of a, you know, don't let this not you type of thing. Yeah, so I, I agree. Let me ask you, um, do you think... Uh, do you think that that is uh, what you... Do you mean, when you say you forgive someone, is that what you mean? Sometimes. Um, because I, uh, I'm a... No surprise, I'm sure, but I tend to... Um, uh, focus on things unhealthily sometimes and um, you know going over interactions I've had with people and if I can find some way to get uh, out of my head and into the world so that I can actually enjoy what I'm doing rather than obsess then um, that's a good thing and sometimes that is just a recognition on my part that I just have to let it go and stop trying to achieve justice or retaliation or uh, mm. anything like that. Um, and so sometimes it is like, it's like that. Sometimes I really do, you know, forgive, you know, absolve the other party of whatever harms I think they did to me. Um, and I, but I don't think like a God can do, could do that for me. Even if I believed in a God, I don't think a God could do that for me. And I don't think it would be um, relevant if God did forgive someone. Uh, who the hell cares? Um, I was the one that was wrong. So the important person is me, not God. Well, substitutionary atonement bothers me in that way. Tony, what about you? How do you use the word forgiveness? Is it, is it anything like the two ways that Darren, uh, that Darren used it? I think at the end of the day you have to forgive yourself um, for things but but also the main person you want forgiveness from is the person that you've actually wronged um, and getting forgiveness of some sort of vague being that possibly created the universe Matthew what about you yeah. how do you use the word forgiveness well I tend to use it as if somebody has has either wronged me or I've wronged someone else and it's you know the the wronged party is the one with the power to forgive yeah we can be overly hard on ourselves and you know if somebody has said I forgive you we can still beat ourselves up so to speak over the issue so I think both those work but the concept of this this distant heavenly being having a say in it as well it doesn't work for me I, I I'm just not engaging with that as a as a mechanic in the forgiveness conversation. I guess what I'd say um, to Darren, I I, uh, I like both of the things that you said, and I find myself uh, having been in both in both situations. One where uh, I had to find a way to move on from a wrong, and another where I where I actually had to. Uh, accept a wrong, forgive the wrong, and uh, and find a way to keep a relationship in place because the relationship was more important than the harm that was caused. But when I think about uh, when I think about forgiveness, I actually am thinking about that there's a harm that's caused. I am going to uh, write that harm off as part of having a relationship because the relationship is more important. And the the other thing that capacity 
to find a place where you move on. Um, for me, I don't think of that as forgiveness, even though I do think it's an essential part of good mental hygiene. So I, I don't know what to call it except moving on, you know, uh, not obsessing. But in my own mind, it doesn't mean that I accept the wrong in the same way that it would if I were, uh, you know, writing it off as part of a more important relationship or something of that nature. Yeah, and I, I agree. The um, When you're forgiving people to sort of do your own mental hygiene, it's less about... Um, and there's multiple ways to do it, to move on. Uh, forgiveness just happens to be one way to do it. Um, but in that case, it's more of a way to keep yourself sane than it is. Yeah. Um, and it's just one method to move on, you know. Yeah. And if that works for you, then great. If you need to use a different method, then whatever works for you. Yeah. Right. One last thing I wanted to throw in and if I'm going to get any hate mail for for this particular episode what I'm about to say is going to be it when I was going through these notes and um, I got curious about the Corrie ten Boom story and uh, th a thought occurred to me I wonder what the guards side of the story is we haven't heard his perspective on this oh. I wonder what his name is I wonder what his version of this story is so I did some checking, did some Googling, did whatever it was that I could to try to find about this story. I can't, I can't find his side of the story. I couldn't even find his name. The, it, all, the, all the versions of the story that I could find about this are variations of the story as told in this episode. I couldn't find a different version of the story, which includes more detail about the guard. Um, and that's a little concerning, isn't it? It, um, it is. This is exactly the kind of detail that puts up a flag for me that that says, "Did this really happen?" And I can feel it already. I've been brought up on on this lady. You know. Everybody thinks she's awesome about what she what she went through and what she tolerated, and this forgiveness story really does sort of like seal the deal in terms of uh, the saintliness of this lady. But I'm now left with this niggling doubt and questioning: Did this story really happen? Yeah, see, that's not what that particular aspect is not what makes me question the story, because I can I could see the because there's. There are probably what thousands of guards um, uh, taking care of those things, and I would guess maybe one or two might have written down um, their side of things. And given um, Germany's sort of attitudes on that, maybe not even then because they don't want to come out and actually face that kind of backlash. Um, so that part I don't actually find problematic. Uh, for me, it, it for me it was uh, when she started talking about it in her own words. That's when I started wondering if it really happened the way she claimed it did. Yeah. Just because of I've read some uh, different research on how memories change over time. Mm -hmm. So that was, I mean, I have no reason to doubt her, and I'm fine just taking the story for what it is. But 
yeah, I got sort of the same sense just for a different reason. Okay. And you having said that, you know, not long after the war, though, and it's still going on today, you know, people are hunting down guards from these camps and putting them in prison. So these gentlemen were motivated to keep their identities hidden. And the act of doing that, assuming it's true, would have been at great personal risk to this individual, regardless of whether he became a Christian, regardless of whether he he gained forgiveness from Corrie Ten Boom, outing himself was would have could have been an act of significant personal risk. So there is motivation for these people to to stay silent, but it's the the fact that somebody would come up and identify themselves is a little bit of a problem. So I'm I'm left with this niggling doubt. And I, I don't like to be questioning this story like this. And maybe I shouldn't should have just fought my curiosity. But I'm a curious person when it comes to stories like this. And I like to check out other details. I, I think let's just leave that one there and, um, and and move on. Week four, that follows on. The subject is, how can I have faith? And faith is um, quite a nebulous word in Christianity. It seems to be used in, in different contexts to mean different things. But whenever you try to nail it down in conversations, faith is usually swapped for the word trust. And it's usually used to mean something that we trust because it's got a history of being reliable. And I think this is an element of my problem with the word faith, because if you can use it as something that has shown itself to be reliable and then apply it to the Christian God, reliable means You've got a a history of things that you can pinpoint. And for me, with my sceptical brain, reliable means confirmable and testable. And unfortunately, the Christian God does not meet the standards of confirmable and testable. So therefore, there's a big question mark for me when using the word reliable. And so therefore, faith being used as trust to the Christian God doesn't work for me. And so this whole narrative of faith in the Christian God, again, like the one in the mechanics of sin, the whole idea just doesn't work for me. Yeah, well, and I agree on a lot of that. My biggest problem is that is epistemic, mostly, just because, uh, like, for example, the first definition of faith that uh, Nikki gave was that it was a re- reasonable um, reasonable step based on good evidence. And by that definition, I would say that he doesn't have faith because he doesn't have any good evidence. But the problem is, is that he actually, um, he thinks he does have good evidence. The problem is, is what he thinks is good evidence is that the Bible says it's true. So therefore it's true. Um, and that's what he thinks is evidence. And but by the end of the show, when they were describing faith, uh, by the end of it, they weren't using faith to mean having good evidence. They were using faith as an excuse for when they don't have evidence. So even within the same 30 minute video, they changed the definition of faith they were using. I think this is a problem when faith is being discussed. You have this this morphing of, of faith being used in the same word is being used in in different circumstances but and to mean slightly different things but it's all the same words and it just makes it a little bit more confusing there's that think, passage about oh i'm sorry darren go ahead oh go ahead well i was just going to say there's that there's that passage about faith of a mustard seed 
being able to move mountains. Some of the listeners will know that, that I'm a weak atheist. I'm not saying that there is no God. I'm simply saying that the ones that have been presented to me so far are not ones that I think can exist due to uh, internal inconsistency. So in some sense, there are gods or potentially gods out there in whom I actually have, I'm willing to accept that there might be a God that could exist. So maybe that's equivalent to the faith of a mustard seed, I don't know. But here is my challenge to any Christian that wants to take the notion of faith seriously. I didn't write that passage. Not my fault. I'm aware of it. I'm not responsible for it. If you're a Christian and you have faith, give it a try. See if you can levitate a spoon out of your coffee cup. See if you can change the channel without a remote control. Do anything by a mental act of faith alone. I'll wait for your report back. Well, the biggest problem with uh, that kind of challenge is that on some level, I think people really know that, and I, and I have a problem articulating this correctly, so hopefully the audience will take what I mean rather than necessarily what I say. Um, but I have a hard time believing that people actually believe the stories. And hmm. um, I mean, I know that they believe it, but I have a hard time believing that they truly on a gut level, you know, in their bones, actually believe it type of thing, you know? Does that make sense? Because sure. because um, whenever someone hears your challenge to them about uh, doing anything with faith, they are already going to know what they're going to have to explain away because they already know that the experiment's not going to work. I agree. And so they have to have some sort of accurate map of reality in order to know what to explain away before the test is even done. Yeah. So I think you're going to get a lot of explaining aways with that challenge just because they already know that it's not going to work. It happened, uh, it happened to me not very many years ago when my, when my girlfriend and I started dating back in 2014. Um, I'm, a, I'm a blind guy. I've got one eye, right? And, and one eye is actually a prosthetic. But she's got an uncle who actually claims to have done faith healing. He's uh, uh, an Assembly of God uh, Pentecostal preacher. And, uh, and he was faced with this. Um, I simply put the challenge directly to him. Uh, he believes in this, uh, in this sort of faith healing. And I said, you know, it's interesting to me uh, that you haven't invited me along and that you don't introduce me to other people that you think do faith healing. And the, the predictable thing happened. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not surprising in any way. Um, the problem was not with the faith healer or with him. It was my problem. There's something wrong with me so that, so that this thing uh, can't be done. It ought to be obvious to anyone that the master of the universe simply doesn't care what my condition is uh, in order to work a miracle. Well, you didn't know that you're more powerful than their God because your disbelief is able to thwart his, um, his powers? I've been, I've been telling people on this show that I was for years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for a time when crumbs, it's, for a time when I was an active Christian, I 
partook in a, in a group where we tried to do prayer for healing. I never saw healing, but when we were used to do our quotes inverted commas uh, training sessions or you know, reminders on how we do all this, etc., and uh, there's always be this thing about reasons why healing doesn't happen not enough faith it might be you not having enough faith or it might be them not having enough faith and we go well yeah god can't win can he yeah that's 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 exactly right is um surely there are uh surely we should witness certain types of miraculous acts just because god felt like it uh, i mean does does the christian god never feel like em emptying a children's cancer ward um, just because he thought it was the right thing to do. Well, obviously the, not. If he did, he wouldn't have made cancer in the first place. Touche. Um, <laughs> you know, does he, does he never just say, there are a lot of people living in this desert and I don't want them to starve. And so I am going to change this desert into a fertile oasis. Mm. I mean, does it is the Christian God so lacking uh, in self-drive and ethical behavior that he doesn't just do some of these things for humanity without someone begging at his feet? We don't be too much on on the healing side because there's a whole healing episode later on. Oh, I got so, the hammer and the nails, man. <laughs> you do not have to worry yeah. about that episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm already nervous about that one. I can. I, I. I think maybe I should just introduce, put myself on mute, and let you run that one. But <laughs> that's we'll that, that's for a couple of episodes down the line. This one's um, about faith. And uh, Tony, this is one that I think you've just done, or or did a, a week last week. Do you have uh, any thoughts? It should be freshest in your mind. It should be. Um, it kind of passed me by in a bit of a blur, really. It's just not something I can engage with. I don't. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I really don't. I think it was the one I engaged with uh, the least. That this one in the week three, I think uh, it's it's the low point. I I think uh, for me in terms of the trying to get. And I'd have loved more meat to to work these things through. I haven't even got much in by way of notes about what happened. Um, in the group in fact this is what I've got in my notes for the group conversations afterwards good fun group discussion with some great questions and dialogue <laughs> but I didn't write any of them down <laughs> they were clearly that great I couldn't be bothered to write them down well part of the problem was that only about you know five minutes of the 30 minute video was actually about faith the rest was how to be a, a Christian yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so I mean they were sort of conflating faith and believing in Christ. So to really talk about the episode, you really have to ignore the faith part and talk about, you know, yeah. there some were, of the other stuff. Yeah. Watching it, I watched it again earlier this evening. There were two moments which really stuck out for me, and they're both around about the 20 minute mark. The first one, which I actually sat up and thought, was that, did that really get said? And it basically compared with faith in God with faith in a chair you, know, right. you, you you sit on you have faith in a chair that you sit on it it's not going to collapse under you and it, it was it compared that with with faith in jesus which is i i thought if jesus is really that important to you please 
come up with a better uh, comparison. I, I thought that one devalued the importance of Jesus in Christianity. So I'll skip over that one really quickly because the one that really gets me. Um, you mind if I... Okay, no, he's right. You go on that one then and I'll move on to the other one. Feel free. Yeah, no, the, the one with the uh, chair and, the, um, and Jesus, the biggest problem I have with it is if we had enough, if we had the same type of evidence for Jesus that we had for the chair, we would not be having this podcast. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that is quite the obvious response to that, you know. One, one really quick story, Matthew, because this is a good point that you've brought up. Um, just a couple of days ago in the news here in the United States, um, a, a fire department was called to the scene of a, uh, of a house. Uh, a new homeowner was moving in. And uh, this was an old home that was built in the, uh, sometime in the 1800s. And there'd been an addition uh, built onto this house, some new construction uh, after the property uh, was originally built. And uh, the fellow that purchased the property, had a friend helping him move in, like, like many of us do. And this addition had been built over the old well of this property built in the 1800s. And when they built this addition over the well, they did two things wrong. They didn't put a well cap over the well. And the floor in this addition was not supported, uh, not, not enough lumber underneath to support the floor. So they're moving some furniture in and this floor collapses and the friend that's helping the guy move in falls down in this well and the story turns out fine. The fire department comes, they get him out, but it's a scary time. Here's my point. There are all kinds of things that we look at and we think that we can judge safely. In other words, uh, the way that we were using faith in that chair that go catastrophically wrong. Um, now, it didn't happen for this. It went wrong, but not catastrophically wrong, which is sort of why I chose this particular, uh, this particular event. But my point is that faith is not a good way to draw a conclusion. He looked at this floor. His friend looked at this floor. It was a house. It was a floor. It looked perfectly fine. And it went badly wrong. And we've all had that same kind of experience with a chair. And so I'm just agreeing with you, Darren. I'm coming alongside and saying, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> and, and, and Matthew, I'm coming alongside. I'm not, I'm not sure that does what they want it to do. I'm not sure that particular, uh, we have faith in a chair. Uh, actually, we have a justified trust in a chair. And it's because we use chairs an awful lot and we know what their limitations are yeah the a lot of times the uh christians try to change the uh or try to use it the definition of trust for faith interchangeably and they yeah. say and they seem to think that just because they trust something it's not a blind trust they don't seem to realize that even if they do change the word from faith to trust they still haven't gotten over the blind part of that yet and blind faith and blind trust, they mean pretty much the same thing. Right. And so there is a conversation, maybe not today, but it is a conversation worth having the various ways. And Matthew, I think we've done it in the past, the various kinds of ways that the word faith can be used. Um, but if you're using the word faith in some way other than uh, 
a, a, justified faith, uh, a justified faith based on experience given outcomes over time. You're not using faith in the way that, uh, that a skeptic is likely to be using it. Well, and unfortunately, they think they are. Because if you uh, listen to Nikki, his, uh, what he was calling the Holy Ghost, these feelings that he had inside, that's what he was calling his experience. The problem was is that how he was, in, he was never able to demonstrate that how he was interpreting that experience was actually what it was. Um, I mean, we've known since the 30s that feelings are just chemicals in the brain. I mean, you don't even, there's no neuroscientist uh, today, alive today that thinks that uh, feelings are anything other than chemicals in the brain, but they're interpreting these feelings as if it was this uh, God that's doing things, or that's, I don't know, communicating with them. I don't know, but that, that's what they're doing is they're taking this experience that they haven't got any evidence is actually true and you trying to use that as evidence for their trust, their justification. And that's the problem is the, even though they like to say that their faith is based on evidence, the evidence that they're trying to use as evidence for their uh, faith has no evidence for it. And it certainly couldn't for you or me not having Nikki's uh, you know, whatever, whatever internal landscape he has that allows him to use this as, uh, you know, some sort of evidential justification, even if that works for him, you and I wouldn't be warranted in reaching his same conclusions. I disagree with that. I think if he can demonstrate that what he's feeling is actually what he's claiming it is, then I think we can be warranted in, um, I mean, it wouldn't be strong evidence, it'd be weak evidence, but I think we would be warranted in taking it as evidence. Oh, so that's a good, that's, that's a reasonable criticism. I guess what I meant was, in this case, there's not a way for us to relay to each other these sort of feelings that he has around whatever events in his life have caused him to believe. Now, I agree, if, he, if we could relay that sort of emotional information somehow, maybe we could have a different conversation. But Nikki's experiences can't make me believe, unless he can somehow relay those experiences. Well, um, I don't think he would actually have to relay the experiences. Even it just demonstrating that the supernatural exists with or without a God, and he can show the mechanisms with which the supernatural can affect our emotional state. I mean, He's got the beginnings of a good argument at that point. The problem is, is he's just asserting that these feelings that he has are um, God, and everything we know about feelings directly counteract, contradicts what his claims are making. Right. So that is my problem, is that right now what he has are claims, um, and uh, the evidence doesn't seem to be on his side. Um, so yes, if look, we would not be doing still unbelievable if Nikki could demonstrate the supernatural. Yeah, we'd be doing a very different show, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so there you are. Um, but yes, if he could look, yes, if Demi, if uh, Nikki could demonstrate the supernatural, you know, it'd be game over. Sure. Did you have any thoughts on the uh, chair test, Tony? Before I move on to our final point. No, not really. Um... It's just silly, isn't it? <laughs> that was my only thought at the time. Just... Yeah, I, I, I didn't get it. Maybe, maybe they were intended to be light-hearted, and maybe it was intended there to provoke some conversation within the groups. No, it, it could well be 
that's why it was there and that we've s served the purpose by talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Tony, we're going to have to uh, uh, teach you how to jump in and interrupt because it, we'll, Andrew and uh, Darren will just go on if we, if we don't uh, interrupt them. And, uh, okay. Look. Sometimes I go on even when you do interrupt. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not necessarily a guarantee. <laughs> there, there is. Um, the... Unless you guys have anything else to to raise up on on this episode, and feel free to do. But there was one more thing which I wanted to pick up on this week for episode, and I'm quite happy for us to ride out out this particular episode of Still Unbelievable about it. But like I say if anyone has anything else to pick up, feel free. And um, but this is immediately after they did the chair analogy. We had belief in God requires just as much faith as belief in the non-existence of God or a variation of those phrases. Those weren't the those may not have been the exact words that were said, but it was effectively the same meaning. And I pushed back against this particular phrase in, in my group time at least once, possibly uh, a couple of times. And I wanted to be pushed back in the strongest manner we can, because this is something that we hear a lot. And I think we need to put this one to bed in as brutal a way as we possibly can. So the statement is belief and non-belief require equal commitment. Uh, am I understanding that right? Is that I, a good summary? I, I well, think what was said was belief in existence and belief in non-existence require the same amount of faith. I think that is the meaning. Okay. I, I think belief and non-belief, but, you know. Well, I've got it here. He, he, the, it is pretty close to the exact words where you can't prove conclusively that there was no God or, or I'm sorry, you can't prove conclusively that there is no God or that there is belief in the non-existence of God and the existence of God requires faith. <laughs> I, I well, think they've been very careful about the way that that was phrased, but I think many, many people will hear it and understand slightly different things from that phrase. Yeah, and that's that's the biggest problem with phrases like this, is that if you're asserting that there is no God and your definition of faith is that you can't prove conclusively that there is no God, then by definition you have to find the person claiming no, no God has faith. The problem is, is that the people, atheists, don't define themselves that way. They don't define faith that way. And even most Christians don't define faith that way. So... <laughs> It's like, I mean, technically, maybe he's right, but not in the normal usages of any of the words being used. And I'd like to pick that up and, and run with it and run with the definition of faith that was used, which is faith in something that we can we can touch and test. You know, let's go to the back to the chair thing. I'm a naturalist, a materialist, however you want to describe it, because I can see and touch and interact with and and I have faith in the natural world around me it is explained extremely well there is no explanation that we fully understand and work with that requires anything that's not natural and that is by the definition of faith that has been discussed a justifiable reason to believe there is no God Seems well yeah because go ahead Darren. I was just going to agree with uh, their that their initial definition of faith is a reasonable step based on good evidence. So there's almost a false dichotomy. In fact, I think there is a false dichotomy um, in in the way that's phrased. So if I if I summarize it as uh, faith and lack of faith require equal commitment, um, 
here's, here's the problem we run into. If, if we say that um, we can't prove conclusively that there is God and we can't prove conclusively that there isn't a God and they both require equal commitment, surely the thing that we should do is not commit to either position. Because that is, that is, the, that is the way we go about uh, uh, a, a sort of rational investigation is to say, I don't know what the truth of a thing is and to not take a position up front. So I think there's a false dichotomy. There's a third position that is the more rational to take if in fact we can't prove conclusively one way or the other. And so if you're going to take the position that you can believe in a God, what you should be saying is that on balance, you have some way to break that tie. You're not saying that you can 100% prove that there's a God, that you can prove absolutely. But surely you're, you're making uh, an epistemic commitment to it being more reasonable than not. And if you're not making that commitment, then you shouldn't be taking a position of faith of any kind. You should be saying, I don't know, and it requires further investigation. I agree with that. And I would say and I would add on to that by saying that the very fact that they believe that um, both positions require faith counteracts their proposed definition at the very beginning. Mm. Because if, if both positions are based on good evidence, which is what they used as their their definition of faith at the very beginning. You can't have good evidence for both positions that are um, yeah. uh, diametrically opposed. Right. So that right there shows that the the statement itself is incoherent, the way they've they're using it. Sure. And there's another problem. If you're saying that that faith can be used to reach either outcome, what you're saying is that your tools are faulty. Yeah. Faith shouldn't be able to reach both conclusions. If faith is going to be a good epistemic tool, it should necessarily lead to the ability to choose between outcomes. If faith is always going to be a coin flip, you need better epistemic tools. Yeah. There's also um, an insinuated slipperiness going on here. And I, I see it an awful lot in the Unbelievable Facebook group going on there. There's this insinuation that it's unreasonable to reject the God concept because you can't prove that God does not exist. Oh, goodness. Well, using I can't that prove logic. that fairies don't exist. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I, I was just going to say using that their logic, then it would also be completely unreasonable to accept a God. because Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, but I've also got to be committed to the celestial teapot. To universe creating pixies, to quote Matt Dillahunty. I mean, um, you know, if, if you say that I've got to be committed to those things that I can't disprove, uh, you're, you're even committed to contradictory positions. Yeah. So it's, it's total, just total nonsense. Yeah. Well, I think the best definition of faith I've ever come across is uh, Matt Dillahunty's, where he says that uh, faith is the excuse people give when they don't have good evidence. Because if you have good evidence, then you give the evidence. Yeah, he wears and, that out. It's good stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I think it especially applies in this video. Because um, if 
they think they have good evidence because the Bible says that um, it happened, but they haven't demonstrated that, but they don't have any good evidence that the Bible is accurate. They think they have good evidence because they've, um, they have these internal experiences, but they don't have any evidence that these internal experiences are what they are claiming they are. Um, and I found that when, it, if you dig down deep enough and you, uh, try to get them to, to get their chain of evidence down at some point, every Christian I've ever come across always says, oh, well, you just have to have faith. And as soon as they say, oh, you just have to have faith, they're using Matt Delhunty's definition of that. They're no longer using the definition they originally gave that says um, that it's uh, faith based on, on evidence. Right. And I was that makes the construction. Go ahead, Matthew. I'll, I'll be quick. I was having a conversation with somebody on Facebook about this thing, and no word of a lie, they said to me, sometimes you just got to stop asking questions and believe. Yeah. Um, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I no, I absolutely look. I I have to keep taking my foot off the gas on this faith thing because in our if not in our next episode in the one after that, uh, Nikki draws a parallel between theology and science, and he switches in in this in this argument that he makes. He switches the word theology for faith. And I want to talk about it so bad. It's absolutely consuming me, and I can't do it here. So it, this is a teaser for people to keep listening because this conversation about how the word faith is being used and being used disingenuously doesn't end here. This particular problem is replete in the balance of the alpha videos, and I, I, Matthew will shoot me. <laughs> if, if I if I go off track and, and chase this, but this is not over. Yeah, well, actually, it, your observation actually started in week four, because um, like ninety percent of the video was talking about how to be a Christian, and they weren't explicitly doing that. But you can. It took me about half the video before I realized that's what they were doing, as they were um, just making faith and belief as a Christian synonymous. Yeah. And it's, um, I will go in, I will go on record and say that I think that it is done accidentally. I think that it is done genuinely. I think that, uh, he is not being disingenuous. Nikki's being honest when this happens, but for the people that are going to stop listening to this podcast and watch the videos, more on that at the end of the show. If you're going to stop listening and watch the videos, I, because we can't chase it more, please watch for terms to change in the videos. This is, it, is, it is incredibly important to identify when, uh, when a false comparison is drawn. Any thoughts on that, Tony? No, I was just saying I haven't anything to add really to that. Um... I just had a slight Skype malfunction there, and I was pressing the button, and nothing was happening. It's that Android. Sorry, it's you're using an Apple phone, aren't you? That's what it is. Uh, <laughs> no, it is an Android. <laughs> oh man, why did you admit it? <laughs> oh, it's a, it, look, Matthew. It's it's. It, I'm telling you, man. All you have to do is convert now. 
leaving Android and going to Apple is as liberating as leaving Christianity and becoming a skeptic. Really? I found the I, opposite to be true. I don't have enough faith. Yeah, well, you're the devil. We're not surprised by you. <laughs> hey, if you're going to be calling me the devil, I need minions. What you do with the truckload of babies is entirely up to you. Oh, <laughs> what am I going to oh. do with a bunch of babies? You know what? I'm going to have to say this now. Somebody on Twitter pointed out to me that we had a spelling mistake in our uh, Still Unbelievable <laughs> logo. It had been there for, I, goodness knows how many. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we, um, we, we got it rectified, and I, I thanked the person on Twitter. <laughs> and then I said, the person at fault has been force-fed a raw baby, and it, when you want to be on its way shortly. <laughs> so... That was actually my oversight. Uh, thank you to the Twitter list, uh, to the Twitter person that pointed out. Well, if anyone's still listening, I just want to point out that in these videos, um, Nikki actually makes a few testable claims um, about Christianity. I know it's, a lot of it sounds like fluff, and a lot of it's just assertions and um, hopeful, wishful thinking, and magical thinking, and all that. But there are a few things like in um, that make his claims actually testable. It started in uh, week three is when I started noticing it. Um, and it was um, things like love is not just a feeling. Um, your worth is how much you're worth to God, these kinds of things. And in uh, week four, it was that um, God loves God loves us more than any parent loves a child. Now, these are all testable claims. Uh, especially things like God loves us more than any parent loves a child. Cancer exists. The claim is demonstrably false. So we know that whatever God that Nikki is worshiping is either A, not the actual God that exists, or B, just no God exists. I mean, those are our two options at this point because this statement that he's making about this characteristic that God has is demonstrably false. So I just wanted to sort of point that out um, since I noticed it in week three week, and week four, and I'm guessing it'll continue within the next uh, weeks as we go along. Yeah, look, we all have friends and family. And so it, it doesn't, Christians play heavily on the parent-child uh, relationship, but it doesn't take a parent-child relationship uh, to realize that we wouldn't leave our closest relationships in a burning house. And so if you've ever known anybody who was left in a burning house, um, your God didn't love them enough. And if you wouldn't have, or if you went in to save them, you loved them more than God did. And if you worship a God who is going to uh, do away with most of humanity by torturing them forever, and if you wouldn't do that same thing, if you're scratching your head right now saying, yeah, I know hell seems awful and I wouldn't do it, but God has a reason. You are the listener who should, you're right on the edge of being more moral than the God that you worship. That moral qualm, that thing, that, that reservation that you have, that you wouldn't burn more people than you saved, that should be the thing that is lighting the exit for you. That is your way out of Christianity. 
when you walk out, pick up a mic. We'd love to have you on Still Unbelievable. Absolutely. The final thing then to pick up is Reason Press now has some extra bits on their website for Alpha. So if you go to reasonpress.net forward slash alpha, we've got some pages there where there'll be discussed forums for each of the episodes and the weeks of Alpha. So we'll be putting some of our notes for each of the Alpha weeks and some links on there. So if you want to have a longer conversation, uh, have argue with uh with darren over comments on discuss uh, i'm sure he'll be very happy to engage with you or other argumentative opponents are available as well and but you'll have more fun with darren i promise you and so if the thought of coming on to, uh, to still unbelievable and uh, talking to us scares you too much come and engage with us defend uh, alpha if you wish reasonpress.net forward slash alpha there'll be some some links on there go to the the episode week of your choice and there'll be some content appearing in the forums on there so look out for that over the coming weeks so reasonpress at gmail.com for any emails and hate mail if you don't like the way we treated the stories from world war ii tell us about it send us an email any other notes andrew uh, just one uh, you can also just go to reasonpress.net and click on alpha discussion groups on the, in the left-hand menu. But the the bigger point is that there are a couple of uh, there are a couple of discussion boards linked under alpha uh, that are a general discussion board. So if you are listening to this podcast and it brings up an idea that we don't discuss here. Uh, and but you'd still like to talk about it because you think that it is somehow uh, relevant to Alpha, but not one of the things we covered. Um, the next to the last board in the left-hand menu uh, is an open discussion board, so you're welcome to bring up any ideas that occur to you there. And if you are not interested uh, in debate, but if you are, uh, if you're a person that listens to Alpha and you just want to sort of connect with us and and say hello, but not get involved uh, uh, in all of the back and forth about debating fine points of theology or whatever. The last board in the left-hand bar is a board just to say hello. It is entirely a place where there's no debate. It's just a place for people to hang out and chat with each other and to uh, build a sense of community just because we care about the same things, even if we don't want to debate them. So. You can have you can have just a friendly discussion or just drop by by going to reasonpress.net forward slash alpha, choosing the last link in the left hand bar. And we sincerely hope that you'll come and join us. We love the conversation. Thank you guys. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Tony. It's been a pleasure. And there'll be another alpha analysis in a couple of weeks' time. Sounds like fun. Cheers, guys. Thank you for that. Cheers. Bye. You have been listening to a podcast by Reason Press. To get in touch, email reasonpress at gmail.com or see our website, reasonpress.net, where you'll also find our book, Still Unbelievable. We welcome more feedback and you might even end up on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. You can hear more of her music at soundcloud.com slash hollybishop. You can support us by buying some of Holly's music and telling her we sent you. Music